Greetings and salutations, friends, and welcome back to The Arcade. We are your video game podcast here with you for the first week of February, our first episode here in the new month of February as the year 2021 continues along, and so do we here at The Arcade. We thank you so much for joining us once again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages. I am Mike the Legend, and glad that we can all be back together once again as uh, this world just keeps on turning, and its craziness just keeps on churning, and time just keeps on ticking, ticking, ticking into the future. Absolutely. Uh, and yes, I am the second voice on this program, as I always am. This week I am Dennis, the man who, while playing Death Stranding, feels like Homer Simpson watching Twin Peaks. <laughs> That's a very specific reference you are making there. Yes. Well, uh, there's... I don't remember off the top of my head which episode it was, but there was a scene where he was watching Twin Peaks, um, where it was like some person on the show dancing with a horse and some other wacky things happening on screen and played off as basic, basically being, you know, artistic while being kind of indecipherable, you know, typical David Lynch kind of stuff. But then it got back to Homer and he's just like, has this confused look on his face. And he's like, brilliant. I have no idea what's happening. <laughs> and that's, that's exactly how I feel when I'm playing um, Death Stranding. Uh, indeed, the uh, most recent effort from Hideo Kojima that uh, came out for the PS4 back in uh, 2019. So it's just over a year old at this point, and you're finally making your way over to the game. And uh, talk us through it, talk us through it, walk us through it. Uh, how far are you into the game, like story-wise, time-wise, and... Uh, uh, do you need help deciphering what the sweet shit is going on? Um, I'm sure it'll start to make sense the more into the game I get and the, you know, um, the more certain acronyms that people just casually use without explaining them get maybe explained or brought up in better context and things like that. But at the moment, I have no idea what's going on. Generally, it's very confusing. <laughs> They've introduced... More stuff that hasn't really been properly explained yet than stuff that they've introduced that has been explained. Um, maybe it'll never be explained and you have to interpret what things mean for yourself. I don't know. I have no idea. But um, I'm enjoying it so far. It's just uh, – yeah, I it's – yeah. No, <laughs> I can't really explain it. It's uh, – Wild and wacky, and yeah. So, so about how much time have you put into the game thus far, and what percentage of that time has left you confused, if not outright bewildered? I've put about, it's probably an hour into the game, and all of it. <laughs> <laughs> so what I'm hearing is this game does not hold your hand at all. No. <laughs> Not at all. I mean, it's it's kind of um, refreshing where, uh, you know, there's – it's kind of generally – a lot of games will be very overwhelming with, you know, click this button to do this thing, click this button to do this thing. This thing is required to jump over these types of things or whatever. Like, And there's basically none of that. They'll give you some – some contextual clues that, you know, that seem more like this might be a helpful hint at some point, And it's not clear if they're giving you the clue 
because you've reached a place that needs it or if it's just sort of like they're cycling through random clues just to show you that there's random clues available because yeah, I, in the first little bit when they were kind of introducing the basic mechanics of the game, I, it was not clear what direction I was supposed to run in. If I was supposed to pick stuff up or basically the first time I picked too much up, it became very obvious what happens when you do that. And it was, it was sort of a lesson you had to learn on your own, which I appreciate, but still, it was sort of like a thing where it was like, uh, am I doing the right thing? Am I walking in the right direction? It's not super clear, which I guess kudos to Hideo Kojima because ultimately I did kind of walk in the direction that looked like it could have been the right direction and it turned out that it was, but I don't know if that was just a total crapshoot or if it was just something that they carefully designed that way to make you feel disoriented and ultimately like with just enough clues that you would kind of like find where you need to go. But I don't know. It's <laughs> I'm enjoying it so far. Talk to me next week and I might have a different opinion. We'll see. <laughs> so of the, uh, the hour that you've spent uh, playing it so far uh, in a game that, I mean, doesn't hold your hand and is uh, a Hideo Kojima project. Uh, what have you uh, learned or interpreted the story to be? Um, and, and so th- I, I ask this question with a focus that later on, as you play further and further into the game and in subsequent weeks, we can kind of re- go back and revisit this and see if your, you know, uh, anticipations of the story or what you think might happen or thought would happen actually unfold and come to fruition. I think what's happened is the world has got like some event happened in the world that has caused things to, uh, well, I think as they call it, something called a death stranding happened and poked holes between the, this world and what I'm assuming is the spirit world. And now monsters from the spirit world are, you know, wreaking havoc in our world and sometimes things happen where cities end up getting quote unquote voided out because of, you know, basically the effects of things from the spirit world causing massive damage on our world and basically breaking everything apart. And this is kind of left, well, it's centered it takes place in what is a very, very post-apocalyptic USA. And this has basically left the USA to be the United Cities of America. And across each city, they're not even really united. And you're basically put on a mission by the president to try to reunite the cities. And I don't want to give too much away because there's some pretty weird heady reveals that kind of happen between relationships between you and the president and president successors. And if that's a thing that needs to happen, for example, (laughs) not to spoil anything, but, uh, things, things of that nature and how you, you know, know people and your involvement in things. And yeah, basically from what I understand, you have to basically go from the East coast to the West coast, reconnecting people, Proving people, proving to people who aren't connected 
and who apparently don't want to be connected, why re why becoming reconnected with the rest of the people is a good idea, I suppose. So you have to uh, go across and uh, restore people's faith in the American spirit and the concept of America? Or I don't even know if it's the American spirit and the concept of America. I think it's just rekindling people's interests in being part of a bigger thing where, like, you might live in a city, but maybe it's better to be connected to more people than just the city you're in. Or maybe Kojima will pull a fast bone on us and maybe that's not the actual message we're trying to get across at all. Maybe we'll start doing that and then discover, no, actually, it's better to be isolated from people. (laughs) I don't know. Have you in your, uh, I guess, a very limited play amount of uh, or playtime with the game yet, have you encountered any of the main stars? I mean, obviously, you're playing as as, uh, Norman Reedus' character in the game, but have you encountered or uh, dealt with Mads Mikkelsen or even Guillermo del Toro yet? Oh yeah, Guillermo del Toro's there, uh, pretty prominently actually. Um, Leah Sidus made an appearance. Uh, a couple other people have made appearances, and you see Mads Mikkelsen, but it's unclear what his role is. And that's all I'll really say. Uh, I assume it's something nefarious, simply because it's Mads Mikkelsen. It's unclear if it's nefarious. Oh, well, all right. Then. Well, but but probably you're probably right. <laughs> now has this game kind of played out and been perhaps as batshit crazy as the trailers we saw in the lead up to this game made it uh, look and come across? Yes. So they were they were honest and there was truth in advertising. Yeah. Well, it's you know it's the kind of thing where you know a his girlfriend and stuff was watching me play and she was like. Asking questions and like, what, what was that about? I'm like, I have no idea. I know what you know. And then I went on to say, we watched like, how long in total were all the trailers that they released? 40 30 minutes, 45 minutes? Is, uh, yeah, 30, 45 minutes, if not a bit longer, because the, like, it felt like each, uh, new trailer got increasingly longer with more footage of the game. So let's say 30 to 45 minutes as a rough estimate. Right. But I guess like the, I guess the thing about that though was that, you know, there, the trailer didn't really give us any information about what the game was actually about. It just showed a bunch of crazy scenes and none of that was inaccurate of what the game is. I mean, <laughs> we saw a bunch of crazy scenes so far, one or two of them from a couple of the trailers I saw. Um, but the greater context doesn't do anything for clarity. <laughs> <laughs> so I recall at the time too, when we would watch those trailers and, and kind of give our thoughts uh, of them on this program is I think you or I, or the collective uh, opinion we had is that it, it was coming across that Hideo Kojima maybe needs an editor for, to kind of work down and parse down his, kind of crazy ideas, uh, does it feel like that, feel like that in this game that maybe Hideo Kojima needs an editor? Um, yeah, I think that's probably fair. But then having said that though, I don't really know what an editor will bring other than basically saying you need to rewrite this to make more sense or, and then he might say, no, I have a grand plan. I have a grand scheme of things that I want to take into account and me doing that at this point might be useless. So on your bike. 
Fair enough. So, uh, Death Stranding, uh, lives up to its billing as a, as a batshit crazy game. Yeah. And you're only an hour into it. Yeah, that's definitely true. <laughs> what sort of twists and turns await you? I have no idea. Excellent. Well, I'd imagine you're startled, scared, and uh, slightly intrigued by the, what the rest of this game holds for you. I mean, yeah, I think so. Uh, where it goes from here remains to be seen. I'm sure a lot of people out there know how it uh, is going to unfold, given that they have likely played this game through to completion themselves. Uh, no spoilers for Dennis. It is so easy to, I mean, happen across those on the internet already. Uh, let us not spoil the experience of uh, what is Hideo Kojima's latest batshit crazy game, which, in fairness... His work on the Metal Gear Solid franchise was getting ever increasingly crazy. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it, uh, he got very weird and meta. Well, he started to get weird and meta in the second one, and the third one was just insane. And then the fourth one was basically like a postmodern take on war <laughs> and futurism in general. So the fact that, you know, this was a thing with that, I mean, maybe it's better that, you know, they took like, you know, a more grounded franchise away from him for his wacky abstract ideas and leaving him just kind of out there just to say, here, come up with something new and wacky for your own to put these wacky abstract ideas in. Yeah, because Metal Gear Solid... What it, you know, it was just sort of like supposed to be sort of like a, just a cyberpunk kind of thing, right? Like, or not even really cyberpunk, I guess. It's maybe like a postmodern war thing. Like, I don't know. It's, it's like a step away from James Bond. Like, it's like a cross between James Bond and Rambo, I'd say. Yeah, with also uh, injections of uh, of commentary on politics, U.S. politics, uh, I guess, geopolitical uh, conflict politics, and uh, and things of that nature. So yeah. there'd be a message and a point of view, but trying to then uh, convey that in the wrapper of of a video game that is Metal Gear Solid. Yeah. With mixed results. I, I mean, I enjoyed the uh, geopolitical conflict storyline, but then other times, especially in the second one, um, where it seemed like, you know, towards the end of the game, the spirits were talking to you, explaining their motivations, and it just, whew, it lost me there. It uh, kind of came across as the, uh, the architect character from the Matrix sequels talking. Which, yeah, I think it, that's probably fair to say. If you haven't seen the uh, Matrix sequels, either two or three, uh, there's a character in there called the Architect who kind of looks like, oh, I don't know, Colonel Sanders. Yeah, like an old man of some kind, an old southern man of some kind. And his dialogue in the movie is just the most ridiculous and pretentious crap I've come across in a movie. Yeah. He, his entire dialogue reads as though it's uh like some... A thesis, some college students' thesis paper on on matter and what is real and uh, inevitability and whatnot, and it's it's just horrible to have to plod through in the movie and makes no goddamn sense. Yeah, 
So, yeah, that's kind of what uh, some parts of Kojima games have felt like. And I'd imagine because this uh, Death Stranding game is a Kojima production, there's going to be more moments of that in the, in here as well. That's my prediction for what you're going to uh, encounter at points, too. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, I, I had the same prediction as well. Yeah. I, I, I went into this fully expecting something that I won't fully understand, but I'll find amusing and how pretentious it is. And so far, it hasn't really disappointed. Fair enough. Would you chalk it up as enjoyable to this point? So far, yeah. Okay, okay, that's good. Uh, oh, and just a, a side note before we move off uh, this uh, opening topic of Dennis plays through Death Stranding for the first time. It's Lisa's sax from Season 9, that episode of The Simpsons. Ah, yes, of course. Where Homer's watching Twin Peaks, and uh, after that is when Marge comes in with the uh, the picture of that Bart Drew of just being sad, so... Ah, uh, yes. Yes, it's a... Uh, and it's a man dancing with a horse under a tree, which has a, uh, a stoplight under a, uh, a crescent moon sky. <laughs> yes. Yep, so... Uh, Death Stranding, clearly uh, Hideo Kojima uh, sat down and watched Fox News and uh, and Twin Peaks and was like, I'm going to make a game out of these two. <laughs> and here we are. So uh, I'm sure, and I look forward to hearing more about your adventures in the uh, land of Death Stranding as you work to reunite the cities of America into a greater collective. Uh, but for right now, uh, the greater collective here of everyone listening would like us to move on to our ludicrous leadoffs for this week. We have two of them, as is often the case. Uh, the first one, actually a very, very timely piece, kind of an entirely unnecessary piece, but still very of the moment piece. Uh, so a couple of weeks ago, the uh, uh, an attempt was made to hold a, a consumer electronic show in Vegas, obviously a much more scaled down, uh, limited presentation compared to what it is in normal years. I mean, with COVID still being in effect and COVID protocols still being in place in many jurisdictions. So it wasn't the full blown, uh, presentation with the Las Vegas Convention Center filling to the brim with, uh, uh, displays, booths, companies presenting and whatnot. But one of the companies that still made an effort to, uh, be there and, uh, revealed some new product was the company Fraser who are most often known for their gaming-centric products, uh, PCs, headsets, mouses, whatever. You know, they are a very gamer, hardcore gamer-centric company. And what they, one of the products they revealed at this year's uh, Consumer Electronics Show has absolutely nothing to do with games, but is very much of the moment as they decided to reveal a very, and perhaps even unnecessarily, tech-filled face mask. Yeah, well, you say unnecessary. I mean, we'll we'll get into this in a second. I I can see the long term applications of this as being very useful. However, it does look ridiculous, especially with some of the aesthetic choices they made, because some of them are unnecessary. Because, well, first of all, we all know that the well, it was more of a problem towards the beginning of the pandemic, and I I suppose it's probably still a persistent issue. But the shortage of those N95 masks. That seemed to happen as, you know, the same ilk of people who decided to create a toilet paper shortage early on decided to also buy up a whole bunch of medical grade stuff as well. Maybe not thinking that, hey, medical people might need this more than you, (laughs) you know, 
if, you know, it's, it's fun that you decide to buy, you know, hundreds of thousands of masks and stuff, but you doing that kind of took it away from hospitals where, you know, people are actually going to be dealing with the worst of this stuff. So this caused people to start looking for alternatives to these N95 masks and really, you know, um, lots of different things have came up, you know, people with their cloth masks, three different level cloth masks or, uh, other things like respirators that, you know, would typically be used for, you know, people who would be, you know, around dust and stuff like that have been, ended up being used and whatnot as well. But these aren't perfect solutions, but Razor saw this as an opportunity to say, you know what, maybe this whole disposable mask thing is actually maybe not great. Maybe we should think of a more long-term reusable idea. And yeah, they ended up coming up with this thing. It, it, I think overall the idea is cool, but there's a couple of crazy things that they put into it. Uh, the thing is called Project Hazel. It's basically, they're calling it a smart face mask. At its core, it's got some cool ideas like some silicone, like it's a lot of silicone. And I think it's made of almost entirely recycled plastic, which is also really cool. Um, and it's got a transparent design so people can see you speak and, you know, uh, generally like places for detachable ventilator, which regulates airflow and all this stuff. But the part that people are scoffing at is it's got RGB lighting and voice amplification, um, which, you know, arguably the voice amplification, maybe that's not a super bad idea because you sound muffled when you're speaking with a mask and, yeah, it, having a little bit of amplification might be better because then you can actually hear what they're saying a little bit clearer. But the RGB lighting <laughs> might be a little bit uh, um, unnecessary as well as what they're calling a suite of iconic effects. So you can turn heads while you stay safe, basically turning your face into one of those mechanical razor keyboards that have those light shows on them. That's, that's, I think, a little bit insane. That's a little bit of overkill given the, uh, the purpose behind the, behind the mask. Yeah. Like, no, there's, there's no word if, like, they're gonna actually have a more subdued model that's less ridiculous and just more functional. But I think the reason why this got so much press is because while there's a lot of functional aspects to it, they kinda went crazy with, yeah, like, just bananas, like, over the top stuff that they would put normally in their mechanical keyboards and gaming peripherals and stuff like that, which you don't necessarily need for a face mask, but there are some other cool things in this too. You know, um, as I mentioned, there's a detachable ventilator that regulates airflow. Um, but along with that, they have like a UV light source in the interior, which actually kills bacteria and viruses, that engages as the mask recharges and stuff because again, there's that voice amp and the lights and stuff that obviously take up battery power, which is cool and more reusable than the typical N95 masks and does have the potential for long-term um, financial implications. If you're a hospital, like you might want to outfit all your staff with a mask each and then say, okay, this is your mask now. Just keep an eye on it and yeah, like we're going to buy you one of these a year instead of getting you a new mask every single day. Like it might end up paying for itself. Uh, it, it entirely might. And I can see like there are some good ideas to this, but like the, the inclusion of the 
you know, the lighting, the exterior lighting for it seems a bit ridiculous. Although on the flip side, there are interior lights to this mask, which, as you mentioned earlier, is a transparent design so people can see your voices. Perhaps you're dealing with people who are hard of hearing or have hearing loss and kind of depend on the ability to read mouths and read lips. So this has something called low light mode, which has lights on the inside. They'll automatically come up and illuminate your mouth region when it's dark outside, which is actually a really neat idea for a face mask. Yeah. the voice amp technology, I'm also picturing this having like a bunch of different presets or options you can add to do ridiculous things and make your voice sound like Darth Vader, a robot, whatever, imitate someone else's voice, whatever the case might be that, that maybe isn't entirely necessary, but yeah, I mean, simple, pure, straight up amplification. Sure. Cool. Rock on. Because, yeah, it's a mask that's muffling your mouth and it's just hard to hear. That's unavoidable. But taken as a whole, I mean, this seems like Razer was making another one of their products. But also they have some good ideas in here as well. So it's, you know, there's yin and yang to this product, I have to say. Yeah. It also kind of reminded me of when Homer designed a car. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's, I think that's also very fair to say. And basically went with, you know, whatever idea came to mind and, uh, went into the, in, into the final design of the car, the Homer. Yeah. So there's no word yet on uh, a price point or any sort of release date yet for this face mask. Again, it's still just called Project Hazel, which tells me as a uh, person who's not involved in Razor that, you know, they, Perhaps aren't even, uh, they aren't close. They're not even in the short or near term to release this, uh, mask because it doesn't even have a uh, proper branded name to it yet to market it under. Yeah, exactly. Like Project Hazel does not, is not the type of name you would release a final product with. Like, like we've, we've seen video game consoles, you know, have project names and stuff through the years. Like what? Like, uh, N64 was Project Dolphin or something like that, or the GameCube was Project Dolphin. Yeah, there was also Project Scorpio, uh, Project Revolution. Like, basically any sort of tech product that's still in development is under a project name until it's, you know, close enough to, uh, to being released that it needs to go through the marketing and, uh, the marketing process and then be given something that uh, has been worked on and focus tested, focus grouped and market tested as something that will be, you know, acceptable to the public that they'll want to buy and uh, catch some eyeballs. So Project Hazel is not going to catch some eyeballs. It's not going to bring people to buy this product. Although a lot of the ideas in here are really good. I I actually really like this idea of having the UV light that uh, will basically purify the mask inside its charging case. Yeah, like that is the, that's the coolest part because that's way more than can be said about N95 typical masks. I mean, yeah, they're like a thought that I've, had, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's had this thought of, you know, when you're opening one of these things, like if you open a box or package of these things and you grab the top one, did, did you just de- like contaminate the one directly underneath it by doing so? Unless they're individually wrapped, which is also problematic for a whole of, bunch of other reasons as well. You know, like, is it really a good idea to individually wrap masks and stuff? Like, like, th- like this is like a nightmare for like, like plastic use and stuff. Oh yeah, environmental uh, environmentalists and uh, those with uh, strong environmental concerns, which are well founded. Uh, this has been a horrible time. 
Yeah. Like the the world was uh, on a pathway towards the elimination of plastics, but now we kind of need plastics again for individual wrapping of things, for, you know, one-off sanitary disposal things and whatnot. So plastic gloves, maybe some plastic masks or whatever the case might be. So yeah, it's plastic is back in full force, baby. Yeah. It's uh it's the best time to be a plastic baron once again. <laughs> exactly. But uh, speaking of the Earth and the uh, challenges it faces, as we mentioned, with uh, pollution and uh, plastics in the environment and whatnot, uh, let's turn our attention now to our second ludicrous leadoff. Uh, this is brings a, this one brings us to the organization. Perhaps you've heard of it. It's called the United Nations. Uh, it's a small outfit that is uh, trying to maintain peace across the globe, and uh, they're doing the yeoman's work, I have to say. They are in... <laughs> Bless them in their attempts uh, to try and make this world a good, better, more equitable place for the uh, citizens, uh, regardless of country. But, uh, you know, some efforts work better than others, but uh, they are attempting to tackle uh, actually an old problem and bring it to uh, greater consciousness. And the effort they are trying to tackle is the depletion of the ozone layer, and they're trying to stress the importance of the ozone layer once again, which strikes me as kind of a problem that first cropped up in the 80s, 70s into the 80s, and then I thought it was resolved with the, uh, was it like the Montreal Accords or something, where there was the uh, collective elimination of CFCs from commercial products? Yeah, that's what I thought it was. I mean, I don't remember the name of it, but... I thought that that problem went away, but I guess this is <laughs> this is a, one of those things where I guess it didn't go away. I guess it just ended up getting swept under the rug or, you know, just removed from consciousness because, well, other more pressing things have now come up. But so, yeah, this is this is still a thing. It's kind of like how AIDS is still a thing and, you know, cancer's not cured. No, no, all those problems are still problems, even though they aren't getting the focus of media attention or or just public attention that uh, they did when they maybe first burst onto the scene. They're still there. They're still, you know, background supporting players in the uh, in the play that is life. Yep. Uh, so the United Nations to try and bring greater awareness to the problem of ozone depletion and the importance of the ozone layer as a uh, protecting force for the Earth uh, is releasing. Uh, what I'm sure they believe is going to be an effective method of communicating these problems, they're releasing a mobile game set to come out on the App Store and Google Play. It's due to release on February 10th, and it's designed to give players a better understanding of the role the ozone player, uh, ozone layer plays in protecting the Earth. And this Reset Earth mobile game actually ties in with a new uh, animated film called Reset Earth that is... Uh, actually already out there and available for viewing on different platforms, services, YouTube, things of that nature. That came out back in January, and the film is set in a dystopian post-apocalyptic world, not designed by Hideo Kojima. No. <laughs> but this one set in the world 2084, where the ozone layer has been completely obliterated, and human life is now under the threat from a virus called The Grow. And in this film, we see three teens, perf- you know, an ethnically diverse makeup in this trio, uh, of three teens who team up in a time travel adventure to save the planet and what is left of humanity. They first need to find out what caused the virus known as the Grove. They travel back in time to ensure the signing of the Montreal Protocol Agreement and save the ozone layer. Thank you, press release. Thank you, memory banks. <laughs> My memory banks, not the UN's yes. memory banks. Yeah, not the UN's memory banks, though I'm certain the UN probably has more memory banks than all of us combined. 
I mean, it's possible. Uh, I will allow that as a possibility that that exists in this world. I'm not I'm not confident enough to uh, make that as a firm declaration. But uh, Meg Saki, who is the acting executive secretary of the Ozone Secretariat. Uh, had this to say about the game, quote, the protection of the ozone layer cannot be considered a done deal. It must be a continuous effort by us and future generations. If our children learn about the grim consequences of a ruined ozone layer through a fantasy cartoon and game app, they will be aware of its importance and protect it, end quote. So this is, you know, a good effort, a, a good thought and good intent. Um... Do we think this is going to work and have the outcomes they're hoping for? Well, the thought I had when I first heard about this was, oh, so it's like Captain Planet. Remember Captain Planet? Yes, that cartoon from the 90s that uh, Ted Turner created to try and uh, teach kids about, you know, basically to be pro-environment. Yeah. Did that actually do anything? Uh... Other than giving kids of that era a uh, cultural touchstone to talk about and uh, and you know have nostalgic fits over, no, not really. Yeah, so that's generally my thought. I mean, it's a nice idea. I say go for it, try it. I mean, anything can help. Like if you know anything that like puts an idea in someone's head can help, and the younger you put ideas in people's heads, arguably the better because. Like for better or for worse, <laughs> because then those become sort of things that they just, you think of for the rest of your life, including, but not limited to the Captain Planet theme song. <laughs> but, uh, yes. yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, will it be the all sweeping fix that they're hoping it will be? No, because you know, we live in such a crazy splintered world in terms of media consumption now that it's not even back then there was a way better chance that everyone would watch Captain Planet. And even then I'm sure there's people that didn't because it was like, well, whatever. I was going to watch this other channel while Captain Planet was on because they had this other show I preferred. But now there's no like, there's not like the, the common five or six channels that you'd be flipping between just to watch whatever shows are on when they're on. <laughs> like you can consume whatever media you want whenever you want. And is someone going to choose some environmental game from the United Nations over some other more fun game that they already know they like on their mobile phone? I'd say it seems highly unlikely for that switch to happen. Yeah. Uh, but a nice attempt. This also kind of comes across to me as like educational software or yeah. adults trying to make, you know, uh, learning fun, quote unquote. Yeah. I mean, I've seen people try to make games like that before and I've, you know, I've been indirectly involved in things like that before. And it just, the thing that the stakeholders never want to hear is, People aren't going to play this because this game sucks. <laughs> like you, like the problem that those educational games always have is they're not good games. And that, that is a way, well, I mean, it's honest, but that's certainly a way to, uh, uh, draw the ire and uh, get the backs up of the stakeholders, even though 
it, it as true as it might be, yeah, educational software, nine times out of ten, sucks and is not going to be entertaining or interesting and is just going to come across, at least in our experience of educational software, as and come across as ham fisted. Yeah. Like I, I think a great example is on the Super Nintendo, I think everyone can pretty much agree that Super Mario World is a classic. Classic title, good solid game, good mechanics, you know, good sprite work. Not really much in terms of story, but you don't really need story because we know what a Mario game is. Bowser steals the princess. Mario has to go through a whole bunch of levels to get to back to the princess. Period. That's that's the game. Great game, great levels, good level design, good mechanics. Around the same time, they released a couple of, like, using, sim- like, the same sprites and, you know, same visual style, they tried to release a couple of educational games featuring Mario called Mario's Time Machine and Mario's Missing, which both centered around, like, I think Mario's Missing centered around geography and Mario's Time Machine centered around history, where, you know, it was the same idea where you were Luigi, except you had to go around, you know, either through history or through, you know, the world to try to figure out where he is. And it was all pretty much, the levels were garbage. There was no actual threat in any of the levels. There was no enemies to have to overcome or anything like that. It was literally just kind of run through a place that looked maybe, oh, is this Italy or is this the Middle Ages or whatever? And then you read to the end of the level after talking to, you know, two or three people through the level, and then you do a quiz, then if you succeed in the quiz, you've beat the level. But the quiz was always multiple choice and there was no consequences to failing the quiz. There was no high stakes because with educational games, they don't bake those in. Like there's never any real consequences to not getting a question correct or like not having the knowledge. So there's no real, like I think the, the only game that really got it right in my memory is where in the world is Carmen San Diego? Because Carmen San Diego could get away and you might have lost the case and then you had to start over. Yes, that's very true. Uh, and along the way, the, the points of geography and history and whatnot, the, the clues you were being given actually were important to what you were trying to do. Yeah. So like as a kid, you would be writing things down unknowingly actually writing down real facts about stuff like, like, oh, oh, like they, oh, they said that she went to a place that, you know, exports this type of thing. Oh, and then this one person said that Lima, Peru is the place that does that. Okay. I'm going to write down like this thing, this export Lima, Peru. Now you've just learned what Lima, Peru's or like Peru's main export is. Congratulations. You've just inadvertently learn something, but you did it because you knew that there was a consequence and purpose in the game. And that's what's missing with all these educational games. So we'll see what this game actually, if they actually get that part right, because a good game always needs conflict and always needs consequences and stakes involved. And that's a thing that is always missing from educational games. Yeah, it's just simply being a delivery mechanism for facts and stats and figures, uh, simply done in a different shell, uh, other than a teacher standing at the front of the class, sermonizing. Yeah, exactly. Which, I mean, kids are going to tune that out and they can easily tune something out, you know, tune out a game too if it's, 
being too ham-fisted with facts and not necessarily clever or engaging or trying to not obviously teach. You know, I have to chuckle because you cited the example of Carmen Sandiego as being a good uh, attempt at an educational game. Uh, in our grade school class where we actually got to play Carmen Sandiego, I horrified the teacher at the time when he just kind of came over to check where I and my my table partner uh, on the computers where we were playing it, uh, as he quickly learned that we weren't actually writing things down, we weren't making educated guesses or taking in facts, we were making random guesses. Yeah. <laughs> I, I remember that. <laughs> He was very displeased at the time, and uh, <laughs> because we were defeating the purpose of the game. I remember that teacher. Let's just say he was also maybe a bit of a crazy person. <laughs> he had his challenges. Uh, that that is clear, and uh, more more challenges with uh, later and subsequent generations and classes. So, uh, yeah, you know, I had nothing to do with what would become of the man. I'll say that. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, it's uh, it, it's funny how you know. Education and entertainment, for some reason, don't like mixing together very well. They're like oil and water. You know, it's like, it's like, you, th- th- there's nothing that's really properly come along. Like every now and then something figures out what, how to emulsify it together. But that whole emulsion is very rare. It is. And then others will attempt that formula, but it just doesn't work. Well, exactly. And, and the two sides, the oil and water, the education and the entertainment will stay separated. So uh, we'll see how this works. And also, I've, I've got to point out, too, this is the UN doing it. Yeah. Like, this isn't the UN outsourcing it to EA or, you know, uh, or Activision or something like that. Like a co- company that actually knows how to deliver engaging, interactive uh, game content. No, this is the EA with whatever small developer who passed the request for proposals making a game, but it's going to have to have UN oversight and UN approval for things because they're the financial backers. They're the stakeholders. What does the UN know about making a fun game? Yeah, exactly. So we'll see how this turns out. The game itself due for release on in the App Store and Google Play on February 10th. The animated movie called Reset Earth Earth is already out, uh, having come out on January 24th on various platforms. I'm sure you can Google it and at the very least come across the trailer for it. Uh, we'll see if and what this does. If anything, if it moves the needle, if it uh, reaffirms people's notion that the ozone layer is something to be protected, it is, but... You know, there's also bigger challenges, like there's a horrible pandemic still raging with new strains that seem to pop up every other week. So, and then the employment impact on people as a result of that pandemic. And, you know, we'll we'll, we'll get through the here and now. And the ozone layer is just so big, it's beyond us. We have to, you know, I, I can see if this falls flat and, and does nothing. The timing, perhaps, is not right for it either. No, no, it's not. But is there ever really a good time for, uh, you know, bad news or whatnot uh, as uh, we move out of the ludicrous leadoffs? Because Google had to deliver some bad news to people this week as we now touch on a, another issue, another edition of Google Gives Up. 
Uh, you may have heard the news. If you haven't already, we'll fill you in. The fact that Google announced that they are shutting down their internal development studios that were working on new content, new games for Google's Stadia, which if you're not familiar, if you haven't heard that name in a while, uh, that's because we haven't mocked it in a while. Uh, but Google Stadia is the attempt by Google to do an online game streaming platform that has had a lackluster rollout thus far, I, I'd say. Yeah. So, Stadia, I've always, like, I mean, I think if there's a company that could actually really move games and, like, you know, the, the distribution of games and stuff and the method of which games are played forward because they have the manpower to do it, Google is it. And Stadia, while it, you know, we've laughed at the name and, you know, we've laughed at the rollout and the implementation and stuff because there have been some technical challenges and it's not quite there for people that don't necessarily have internet of a certain speed and stuff. Like, I get it, but I think it is the way of the future. But Google, to me, like, they're not, like, we'll just be clear, they haven't shut down the Stadia service. They've just basically decided that they're shutting down the game development wing of the Stadia service. So it's still a service that they've enlisted other companies to make games for. Like they're saying, hey, Ubisoft or EA or whoever wants to be a part of this, you can become a sales channel on Stadia and we'll provide your games using our Stadia technology. But the fact that Google now has given up and said, eh, we're, you know, we're not really that interested in making games is basically – to me, it's sort of like, like, I'm sure everyone knew that kind of kid growing up or has, you know, has friends like that where they go all in on something, like buying, like spending sometimes in the case, the order of like, you know, thousands of dollars getting into a hobby, going at it hard for a couple of months and then just a hundred percent losing interest going, eh, never mind. That's what this looks like to me. <laughs> I can totally see your point and yes, uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, 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 I think the best description, as I said, was this is Google, Google gives up because Google has a track record of just kind of giving up and abandoning things. Yeah, like despite the fact that this does actually seem like long term could be a very good play for them to really keep going with. Now, maybe they might bring it back depending on if they end up killing Stadia itself or not. Hopefully they don't kill Stadia. I'd like to see it kind of push forward and really like if anything else act as a catalyst for other companies to do more similar things. You know, like I've played with PlayStation now seems pretty good. I mean, you know, I, I'm sure Microsoft has a version of it as well. And, you know, just more cool ideas like this, just because, you know, I'm sure we've talked about it before as well, but PC gaming is an arms race and, if you can just replace that arms race with just, I mean, some people take pride in that arms race too. And this is obviously it's not going to be for them, but they're not everybody. And I think what probably the majority of people care about are just like good frame rate, good graphics, modern games that look as good as they're supposed to be with basically no fuss or must to play them. And that's what Stadia is like promising provided that you have like, you know, these two or three requirements in place and you know it's just going to be video streaming and once that's up to the level it needs to be 
you're good for basically ever. It's true. And Google as a company has the technological infrastructure, like backend infrastructure to provide that experience. Like, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Google and Amazon perhaps are the two best suited companies to provide that backend, uh, intensive processing infrastructure needed to deliver like a high end experience to the user. I mean, granted, it's still also dependent on the user's, uh, internet connection and what sort of capacity they have with that. But, you know, if the back end is taken care of, then it's all the, on the problem of the, uh, of the person at the other end of the line. So maybe this is just a matter of Google doesn't want to be a content creator. Yeah. Like that's what it, that's what I'm hoping is the case because, yeah, I mean, it might not make sense for them to, like they might have just decided, oh, we, we need to make games for this ourselves to inspire people, but then they quickly realized, wait a minute, we're Google. This isn't what our strengths lie. We can just partner up with people who have that strength and then we can just kind of like work with them. And hopefully that's all this is. But it's certainly not really – doesn't look great if you were someone hired by Google for this service because they did – from what I remember, I don't have the – the names of people off the top of my head or anything, but I think they acquired a few companies just to get this initiative going. Did they not? Uh, they might have uh, similar to you. I don't recall off the top of my head, but uh, Google making gaming acquisitions uh, would be simply a rounding error on their annual, you know, financial report. So it would not surprise me if they did, uh, even if they didn't. And if, even if they just started these, uh, these wings and these, you know, dev teams out of whole cloth, out of whole cloth, well, then that's new jobs being added to the, you know, technology employment marketplace, and that's never a bad thing. More jobs for more people. A-okay. Uh, in terms of actual jobs, apparently there's going to be 150 uh, jobs impacted by the closures of these internal dev teams for Stadia, but apparently most of them will be given other jobs, new roles in the company. So they won't totally be out on the streets, but uh, they're just not working on developing Google games for Google Stadia. And this is somewhat in line, though, what we've seen with other companies kind of realize maybe they just want to uh, be in the licensing game or just be in the technology game and not really controlling both. I, I cite the example a couple of years ago of PlayStation when they got out of the original content game, uh, like like Sony may had that uh, limited series powers on the PlayStation network. Yeah. Based on the uh, comic book series of the same name starring Charlito Copley. Uh, and look too, I mean, Disney with the, the licensing aspect, Disney shut down LucasArts when they bought Lucasfilm and whatnot. Uh, God, back in 2013, they got out of making their own games and instead turned to licensing. Why? More money, less liability. You know, there's no chance of making a bad game if you're not the one paying to make the game. Yeah. So uh, maybe the play here is just be a marketplace, uh, a front, a technological technological pathway for people to put their games on and then uh, have the experience that way and make your money that way. So like that's what I'm hoping long term it is because, you know, as I said, like this is going to be good for driving innovation with other companies and really driving other companies to provide similar services like this moving forward because like the end user hardware 
end game doesn't seem like it's like it, it almost feels like it's a race to the bottom at this point. If the internet overall gets to a point when you could just basically everyone's able to stream 4k video with, you know, very little lag, you know, from if, if all gaming needs to be now is just sending inputs over the wire and then having the inputs, you know, be reacted to and then having them rendered back with like the only issue being lag. Like if the internet can basically solve that one problem, there's no reason for people to have their own processing anymore, right? Uh, you'd think so. It might still be people are preferential to have things on their end live in their person in their living room, just as some people may still prefer, you know, disc based games to, uh, a, a digital experience. But it would just become a niche experience at that point, right? Yes, it, yes, everyone, it would. Yeah, so like that—that's what I mean, though. Like outside of niche experiences of people that you know care about putting their own computers together or care about having the physical thing, but even even the people who care about having physical copies of things—that's not even really a thing anymore. That's starting to go by the wayside too, with you know the digital storefronts basically taking over. So this is just basically the next logical step beyond that. So. Hopefully the, Google sees this as the long-term play still, but if it is hemorrhaging money or something, you know, that's fair enough. And I, I can see why they would want to shut it down, but it's basically, yeah, as a company, Google is the one that could basically weather that storm. Whether they want to weather it or not is, I guess, up to their, their big bosses and their, their vision people. So. I mean, as, me. as we're talking about this, the thought occurs to me that we will get to a point, either this year or perhaps next year, where there's there's likely to be about four different, you know, game streaming platforms available to consumers. We have PlayStation Now that's already out there for people to enjoy on PlayStation and over the PlayStation 4 slash 5. Uh, Google Stadia is out there right now in Whatever challenges it's faced, it doesn't look like it's going away anytime soon as an option to, for people to stream their games. Microsoft has their, I think, Play Now service, or I could be getting the game wrong or the name of it wrong, but still Microsoft will have their game streaming service uh, that will likely see a full rollout later this year, if not this year, then certainly next year. And Amazon has Luna that was announced at the tail end of 2020, and that is still in beta testing, full rollout, I'd imagine, coming this year as well. So we're going to have four different game streaming platforms as options available to people, to the end gaming consumer. At that point, doesn't original content and unique content become a key differentiator between these different platforms? Um, yes and no. I don't think that becomes, well, it's one of the key differentiators, certainly. The other key differentiator is performance and stability. And of the companies, I mean, yeah, like, like you said, Amazon and Google are the only ones really in the running who have the infrastructure behind them. I guess Microsoft to a secondary sense as well have the infrastructure behind them to basically be able to provide that consistent strong experience. But yeah, I mean, like you could have the best content in the world, but if your system is super janky and like barely works, yeah, I'm not going to use it. Yeah. I mean, true, but uh, I'm also envisioning too, like uh, there will, I'd imagine there will be some eventual parody or some, you know, to an end user, some acceptable level of parody amongst these platforms and these services. And even, well, 
even across the, uh, looking at the content across them too, EA is going to have content across every platform. Ubisoft is going to have stuff on every platform. So, you know, why do, why would a consumer choose one over the other? Like, why would a consumer choose to play Google Stadia or Go with Stadia as their game streaming service instead of Luna? The games will well, be very similar. Here's another thing to consider though. I think in the future, when all of the hardware that you need to play video games is literally just a thing you plug into your TV and a controller and good enough internet, people are very likely going to be more inclined to get all of them, or if not more, because it's kind of like, you know, with like all the different video streaming services right now, right? Like they're cheap enough, and as long as there's no long-term locked-in aspect, yeah, you might like spin up like, ah, I'm going to pay for this for this month and, you know, play some games on this thing. Ah, maybe I'll deactivate my subscription and move over to this one this month and play games on this one. I could see that being the norm in the future. So, like, if these th- – like, the the way to get yourself set up with Stadia, I think, is, like, you have a Chromecast, which a lot of people have anyways, and they're like 30 bucks. I'm I'm saying 30 bucks Canadian, of course. And then, you know, if getting a Stadia controller on top of that is another 60, like if it's a $60 investment just to get yourself up and running with this type of thing, that's way cheaper than, you know, buying a new PlayStation or a new Xbox or whatever that's going to run you five, $600. So you can get five or six of these different services and it won't really hurt your bank account other than, you know, of course, like the monthly fee, but a lot of these things will require you to pay a monthly fee anyways. Like PlayStation and Xbox, they both have monthly subscription services regardless. So if that just, if you take away the big $600 gorilla that you need to have underneath your TV, there's no reason why you can't have all of them, right? Ah, going, moving to an era of just uh, service agnosticism. Yeah, if not service agnosticism, then service overload, basically. (laughs) But, we're already there and it's just basically going to be a matter of like, hopefully everything becomes more affordable and more accessible. So yeah, I mean, to play one, you know, service over the other, yeah, you're going to need the games, but yeah, that's, (laughs) that, that'll likely be for, you know, if this becomes a service that you want to opt into in addition to the other services that you're already getting, perhaps that's, that's where I can see it going in the future. Uh, this, I, I mean, I think we both know that future is coming either this year or next year where we're going to have multiple game streaming services from the big major tech companies. And, you know, as we we're talking, the thought I had too was remembering back to several years ago with the launch of the on live micro console, that sought to be not a big, you know, hardcore processing system underneath your TV, but instead just a delivery mechanism for the web and do all the backend processing elsewhere and deliver the experience and be a game streaming box. And of course, in that wake, we saw what a dozen, if not more similar attempts at micro micro consoles uh, crop up or at least be announced never to see the light of day, but some, did eventually come out. So we're getting into the future now that micro consoles envision like what, five, seven years ago. Well, sort of, I I think what you're thinking of was Ouya instead of. Yes. Yes. Online. Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Got the names wrong. 
Yeah, on live, I think actually it was just a case of being a little bit too ahead of its time. But Mike, uh, who was it that bought on live? It was it was PlayStation that bought on Sony that bought on live, correct? Uh, I think so. They bought Gaikai, which uh, you know then owned on live. Yes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and as a result, PlayStation now I think is leaps and bounds ahead of like even Stadia in terms of their service. But but yeah, the, I, I know you're saying that this this future is happening within the next couple of years. The future I'm envisioning is a future more where companies no longer are going to be putting out the big $500 box. That's what I'm envisioning is that instead of putting out a $500 box, you're going to have to buy the Sony equivalent of the Chromecast, which is just a little, basically a little dongle you plug into the HDMI port of your television. That's what I'm envisioning in the future. And that will be called the place, the PlayStation stick. Um, well, crap, I should go trademark that name now. <laughs> yes. Or yeah, some something like that. Like that's the future I'm envisioning where rather than it becoming a hardware arms race, it just basically becomes you need this type of internet service to be able to play these video games. Go ahead. Here's here's our $30 stick. Our service is $20 a month or whatever. If you want to buy games there, you know, we have our store interface here and then you can just play them instantly. Like spend your $60, it becomes part of your library, done. And there's no download times or anything. That's the future I'm envisioning for long term, but I'm thinking maybe 10 years down the road. Like this isn't going to be a thing that's going to happen overnight, even in the next couple of years. Like I think these game streaming services that are cropping up are just the starting point. But I, I think the reason why Stadia has such potential is because it's basically they're, they're at the point that is the 10 years in the future in my head now. This is true. They are. Uh, and others are planning. I mean, others ultimately will follow. We're going to see the Amazon Luna service. And I would not be surprised if of the major console companies, Microsoft is actually the first one to go towards that console-less future. Uh, yeah. As they seem to be positioning them, themselves, given the big acquisition of Bethesda uh, and ZeniMax and a number of other smaller studios in the past couple of years, they're positioning themselves as a content company more so than a hardware box company. Yeah, exactly. So that, uh, I think to boil it down, my, the future I'm envisioning will kind of come first, but it is the uh, pathway to get to the future you are envisioning that comes, uh, several years down the road. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but the, that future is coming. And of the companies we all mentioned in there, like Google, uh, Amazon, Microsoft, Sony, there's one name we did not mention of a company. And it's, uh, one that I, I mean, I'm sure they could do well with their own game streaming service because they have the added advantage of unique content that no one else would be able to have. Uh, but I doubt they would ever actually go in that direction, at least in the, ten, you know, next seven to 10 years. Uh, company I'm speaking of is Nintendo. Yeah, the company that is both always 10 years ahead and 10 years behind every other company. <laughs> and you laugh, but it's true. <laughs> like when the Wii came out, it didn't have HD capabilities. I think it maxed out at 460. Yeah. And whereas everyone else was saying, well, no, like you need at least 720 or 1080. That's 
where TVs are going to be in a couple of years, and they were. <laughs> so, like, your Wii games weren't able to look as good as the other games and the other systems, but they went hard on the, the different controls, which, as we now see, Nintendo was ahead of the curve on that because everyone else decided to put motion controls in their in their controllers, you know, in the next iterations, if not iterations after that of their systems. So just as one example. Uh, certainly. And then, I mean, look at the idea or the example we're seeing with the Switch now of Nintendo building in portability uh, to their gaming system, whereas uh, the, their competitors, Microsoft, Sony, releasing the big $600 Gorilla Boxes that can only sit under your TV, they have a console that can be with you on the go, on the bus, on the train, on a plane, in the bathroom, whatever the case might be, uh, for you to enjoy. And the public has responded in droves saying, this is actually something we want. We're down with this idea. And the Nintendo Switch has seen ridiculous sales success since its launch in 2017. Yep. Uh, actually, I believe, uh, yeah, it's March that it'll be four years old. And uh, Nintendo recently uh, releasing their... Uh, financial update for the third quarter. We have some new facts and figures as the Switch continues to sell like hotcakes. Basically, it's a perfect storm for the Switch. There, there's content people want, namely in the form of Animal Crossing New Horizons, and also the other consoles that perhaps people do want to buy, the new PlayStation, the new micro, or new Xbox console, uh, people are having harder times getting because of supply constraints and uh, just uh, production problems with those devices. So Nintendo... They're like, hey, we're still here with the Switch. You want a Switch? And people are like, okay, fine, I'll get a Switch instead. So the Nintendo Switch has passed another sales milestone in the uh, history of Nintendo as a company. It has officially sold more units than the Nintendo 3DS. It has now reached 79.87 million units sold, which is a crazy amount of units in less than four years. Less than four years. Yes which is kind of bananas. And on the software side, I mentioned, you know, people want Animal Crossing New Horizons. That has proven to be the hot game, really, of the last year, ever since it came out in, in March, once the lockdowns and pandemic really started. The right game at the right time. Rarely has that ever happened, but right game at the right time. Well, it has moved ever closer to being the best-selling game in the Nintendo hit Switch's history. It has, to date or basically through the end of December, I should say, because this was for the third quarter ending in December. It has sold 31.18 million copies worldwide. That is just shy of the top spot that is still held by Mario Kart 8 Deluxe, which has to date sold 33.41 million units worldwide. I believe when we spoke uh, previously about the sales success of Animal Crossing New Horizons, I kind of predicted that it would overtake the top spot, uh, from Mario Kart by year's end. I kind of made that comment thinking that uh, Mario Kart 8 Deluxe would exist in a vacuum and no one would buy it at all. And I was wrong on that. I was silly and wrong-headed. Yeah. Well, I think, yeah, because that, I can't fully explain the Mario Kart 8 success other than the fact of like, well, everyone, it's almost like with the Switch, it was a bunch of people remembering, oh, yeah, we could buy a Nintendo console because, you know, they, it felt like they did not a great job with the Wii U and stuff like that for marketing and whatnot. And even then, like, not everyone had a Wii. And I think the people who would have been 
well, recaptured in, with, you know, Nintendo's, uh, or, well, re, had an interest reinvigorated in Nintendo, you know, would have been people that maybe might have last had maybe an N64 or a GameCube or something and just kind of remembered, oh yeah, I love Mario Kart. Oh, there's a sweet, there's a Mario Kart for this game console. I'm just going to buy it. Cool. And that's, <laughs> that, in, that's probably what it was. And also too, for the first, I think probably seven, eight months of the uh, Switch's existence, Mario Kart 8 Deluxe was the top title out there. It wasn't until, well, I, well, I say that I, I should walk that back. Uh, 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 the Legend of Zelda game came, uh, uh, came out at the same time, uh, as the Switch being released. But I guess more people were into it because it's a more, you know, Mario Kart is a more accessible title. And then in the fall of 2017 is when Super Mario Odyssey was released. So, uh, there's that as well. Uh, Breath of the Wild. There we go. Thank you. Thanks, Brain. Yeah. Thanks for finally returning that request for information. Way too late <laughs> to prevent me from looking like an asshole. Yes. It came through for me in the end, Brain, but uh, would have preferred it sooner. So, yes, I mean, Breath of the Wild came out at the same time as the Switch's release, but Legend of Zelda and that franchise has its audience, uh, it is perhaps a smaller audience comparatively to Mario Kart, which is just always fun, accessible kart racing. And people are like, yeah, sure. So the Nintendo Switch hardware sales, uh, for the first, through the nine months from like March to end of December last year reached 24.1 million units, which is a 35, almost 36% increase from the year prior. Software saw a 43% increase from the year prior and just another little factoid about the Switch and its sales success last year coming by way of gamesindustry.biz. I found this interesting and perhaps you might as well, but uh, Nintendo is doing well, uh, a strong global leader in terms of console sales to the point that in Japan for the year of 2020, Nintendo sold six million Switch units or just under six million Switch units in Japan, which is a pretty big number. But in terms of percentage, uh, the Nintendo Switch accounted for 87% of all the consoles sold in Japan last year. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, it's a big number. So the normal Switch sold almost 4 million units. The Switch Lite sold just a, a hair more than 2 million units. Um, so roughly, roughly 6 million Switch units sold of the 6.85 million consoles that were sold in Japan last year. Good golly, Miss Molly. <laughs> Absolutely. But speaking of games and gaming business, uh, and I guess in some ways nostalgia and whatnot, uh, well, actually, Nintendo has seen some success, too, with their Lego Mario sets. And if Mario and Nintendo are doing something, you can understand Sega would want to get in on that action as well. And so Lego announcing this week that... Uh, Later in the year of 2021, there's going to be some official Lego the Lego Sonic the Hedgehog sets being released. Only one yeah. of them officially announced thus far, but it's uh, it's a classic area that we're going to see interpreted into Lego. Yeah, it'll be very interesting to see what happens um, with this. And also, <laughs> whenever I see something like this, though, I just can't help but think of that line... Um, Again, to make another Simpsons reference, because that's, you know, my brain just does that type of thing. There was the episode where, uh, Krusty the Clown was deciding to retire 
and uh, I think it was the one where he became a stand-up comic. I, I don't specifically remember. He was announcing his retirement anyways, holding a press conference to do this. And then one of the, one of the reporters after he said, it was like, I'm retiring. Any questions? And a reporter was like, why now? Why not 15 years ago? <laughs> <laughs> and that's sort of like my thought with this. I mean, but I, I mean, obviously this is a marketing effort more by Sega than it is by Lego. This is definitely not a partner. Like in my head, I would be surprised if this was a partnership that Lego was really trying to initiate. And it's probably more a partnership that Sega is trying to initiate with Lego because, you know, like they're trying to have a renaissance with Sonic the Hedgehog now. What with the movie that just recently came out and um the thing we'll talk about after this as well, which I won't mention just yet because I don't want to steal its thunder, but yeah, they're, they're really trying to get Sonic back in the public consciousness. So I think this is more a Sega play than it is a Lego play. Actually, if I may offer just a, a slight bit of correction, this is a play actually from a 24, a 24-year-old UK-based Sonic and Lego fan going by the name Viv Grinnell, who actually submitted the plans for this Sonic, uh, the Hedgehog set based on Green Hill Zone from the most recent Sonic Mania game, uh, through the Lego Ideas platform. Oh, that's right. I keep forgetting that that's a thing. Yes. Right. Is the reason we have such things as the Simpsons house, the, uh, the Friends Central, Central Perk playset, the Big Bang Theory Lego set, uh, and various other things. Um, uh, oh, the Sesame Street one, that, uh, Sesame Street Lego set also, I believe, came through the Lego, Lego Ideas program. So this is the most recent successful one to come through as well. Uh, it got the requisite 10,000 supporters, uh, and it's now basically in the end stages of negotiations between Lego and Sega to make the deals and rights happen for this to come to fruition. But as to go along with what you said, I'd imagine Sega would have no problem with this coming out, especially this year, because the year 2021 marks the 30th anniversary of Sonic the Hedgehog being released for the Sega Genesis. Yeah. So Sonic the Hedgehog turns 30 years old this year and still looks spry for his age, still moving pretty well. (laughs) Yes. So Viv Grinnell saying in the press release uh, that officially announced this uh, Sonic the Hedgehog Lego set said, quote, I've been invested in the world of Sonic for almost my entire life, and it's such a perfect fit for the Lego system that I spent about a year rallying support for uh, to make it happen. Having 10,000 people back my design was overwhelming enough, even with friends and family behind me, but having it be selected for further development was the most exciting secret I ever had to keep, end quote. So... Uh, it's anticipated it will release later this year, but again, uh, it's in the final tuning stages between, and negotiation stages between Sega and Lego to make this happen. Uh, if you haven't checked it out, we link to it directly on our website, thearcadeshow.com. Check it out. Uh, it's got a spinny loop that Sonic would go through. Uh, I don't think he goes into the ball mode, but even still, the minifigs are there. They're interesting. Although Sonic as a minifig looks kind of weird. Yeah. Well, that's kind of unavoidable. He's, he's kind of a distinctive character and his shape is not that of a minifig normally. So it's, it's going to be a job of basically, um, forcing it into, forcing a round or a square peg into a round hole regardless. Almost, well, not quite literally. He's not, he's not square shaped, but yeah. 
Um, but yeah, as I mentioned pre- previously, you know, Sega seems to be also having a bit of a renaissance or having a day with Sonic these days. Um, they recently had the movie with Jim Carrey, which I keep seeing pop up as a recommended thing because I guess they're trying to push it <laughs> uh, in the various platforms and means that you could watch it on. Uh, but now they're doing the other thing that, you know, one does when they try to reinvigorate a franchise and make it back into a franchise, they reach out to Netflix and they try to get a TV show going. And that's exactly what they did. So this uh, is an, is an announcement for the fact that Netflix has a new Sonic animated series coming to their platform, although not until 2022. And it's going to be called Sonic Prime, and it's a 24-episode 3D computer animated series that uh, is based around, quote, the fate of a strange new multiverse and the fact that it rests in Sonic's hands. Uh, the official blurb for this going on to say, quote, Sonic's adventure is about more than a race to save the universe. It's a journey of self-discovery and redemption. <laughs> so it's a dark dystopian Sonic series? I mean, in, you know, in fairness, the, I think the best of the Sonic series was already kind of dark and dystopian, even though, you know, it was, had comedy elements and stuff, but the one I'm talking about is the second series, the one that had like the, the theme song that we all remember, if you're our age range, which might mean nothing to, <laughs> to you if you're not in our age range. And I'm sorry, it doesn't really matter. But the one, the second one starring Jaleel White, not the first one where, I mean, both Sonics and both series were voiced by Jaleel White, who, if you remember Family Matters as a TV show, he was Steve Urkel, the annoying nerdy neighbor kid. But, um, in both series, Sonic the Hedgehog liked chili dogs and stuff, but it, the first Sonic the Hedgehog series was more or less just a super goofy series. The second one was a little bit darker where it had, you know, really got into the story of Dr. Robotnik turning all of the animals into robots and basically clear cutting the forests and stuff. And it was, it also had a bit of an environmentalist bent, I think. And it, it was kind of dark, even, you know, it was, you know, early nineties dark, which still meant to say, you know, had attitude and was very like, also inspired by Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in a way where everyone is kind of sarcastic too. But yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know how I necessarily feel about it being a 3d animated series. Uh, we'll have to see how it looks. If they try to make it uh, full, like photo realistic, do they take some artistic license to it? Uh, I don't know. I mean, there's no sample art even to, uh, to judge what this series is going to look like yet. Uh, once we have that to go off of, we will certainly offer our, offer our thoughts on it. But, uh, I mean, it's not the first Sonic series. As you mentioned, there were two back in the nineties during the, you know, initial heyday of Sonic the Hedgehog as a character in the public consciousness. Uh, there was, I believe, the series Sonic Universe that was in the late nineties, early two thousands, where Sonic- there was also- there was Sonic Underground as well. Yes, that's the one I'm thinking of, Sonic Underground. Uh, there was Sonic Boom most recently as well. I think to coincide with the Sonic Boom game as well, where, uh, Knuckles looked like the, uh, looked like a teenager in high school who kind of, you know, failed a couple grades and was way too big for everyone else. That was also yep. the series and art style where Sonic was wearing the neckerchief. <laughs> 
Right. So, so there's that. Uh, how this looks and how it's going to all work out. Who knows? It remains to be seen, but it's uh, still got time as it's in development at this moment and not set for release until 2022. So that's still some years away. We are still just barely in 2021. So we'll worry about the future when we get to the future, because right now we have to get back to the past. As I try to channel uh, Doc Brown from Bla- from Back to the Future, but uh, we have two items in our Blast from the Past segment uh, this week, which, if you're not familiar, is always the segment we end the show off with every week. And uh, the items we talk about are celebrating milestone anniversaries. That just makes it easier to pick items to talk about rather than having to randomly pull one out of the ether every time. You know, give some form and, and some some uh, some barriers, some logical uh, ideas to go by. Uh, but we have two items, a movie and a video game to talk about this week. Of the two, where would you like to start this time? Um, well, we can, I, it doesn't really matter to me. Uh, maybe we can just shoot our arrow backwards again and go with the younger of the two. All right. The younger of the two will take us all the way back to the year 2001. What a simpler time it was 20 years ago. <laughs> yes. Uh, for we are about to talk about a game that was released on February 5th of 2001 for the Nintendo 64. It is, or it was one the continuation of uh, a minor series for a major character, but two, it was also the starting point for an, a new run of uh, games in this franchise, in this art style as well. The game we're talking about came out for the N64, as I said, and was simply called Paper Mario. Yeah, so it was loosely, like as you said, loosely a continuation on Super Mario RPG, which was Nintendo's first foray into making a role-playing game, from what I remember, if my hazy memory is correct. Um, but yeah, uh, that game was, you know, a collaboration between Nintendo and Squaresoft at the, as they were known at the time. Uh, but yeah, I guess they did, like went in a different direction for Paper Mario. Didn't partner with Squaresoft. Instead, the developer was a. Uh, a video game developer called Intelligent Systems Incorporated or Co Limited. Uh, yeah, which, you know, later went on to do several other games for Nintendo game series as well, including Fire Emblem, WarioWare and the Wars series. Um, but yeah, Paper Mario, very cool art style. I think it was the first of the Nintendo games that I can remember that really had its own, like really did its own thing art wise. Uh, I guess, I guess that's maybe not necessarily true because there was always, there was also, um, uh, Super Mario World 2 on the Super Nintendo, but this one, it was very different where all of the characters were two dimensional in a three dimensional plane, but Everyone was two-dimensional. Everything, like, there was lots of visual gags based on everything being made of paper. And, yeah, like, including, you know, people being folded up as a big threat and things like that. And, yeah, it was it was a really fun start to what turned out to be a really fun series so far. 
It, it was. It uh, kind of started the trend, uh, well, at least through the first couple of Paper Mario games, of having Mario as your star, like still your silent protagonist, but then filling the world with a bunch of other characters and uh, a lot of helper characters, too, that would all have their own different abilities. So you kind of build a party as you go along through the game in traditional RPG fashion. Now, ultimately, there's only ever one other character out with you at a time, and it's Mario plus one in a battle. It's not like a three-on-three or four-on-four in like a Final Fantasy or whatnot, but still, um, the idea of swapping out characters at a moment was uh, an interesting idea, which I think in more recent Paper Mario games, they've gotten away from the the helper characters, the the additional characters in the in the storylines. They'll be there as background, but they won't actually form a party, if you will, like the first couple Paper Mario games did. Because they bring their own, you know, influence. They bring their own, you know, unique quirks to the game as well and make them enjoyable. I'm also thinking back to Paper Mario Thousand Year Door on the GameCube, which was a really solid game and a really solid follow-up to the initial Paper Mario. And, like, uh, Paper Mario actually had some big shoes to fill, given that it was trying to be another RPG game, somewhat in the vein, but still continue on from the success of Mario RPG Legend of the Seven Stars. Yeah. Which was a huge game, and, I mean, people would still want a sequel for that game. Even to this day, I'm sure you and I and many other thousands and thousands and thousands of people out there would love Square or Square Enix now and Nintendo to team up for another Mario RPG game. Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially given um, how far along the technology of both companies has come. And, you know, the the further JRPG tropes that have developed in the last 25 plus years, I mean, they really played on some of the tropes of the time, but there's been a lot more since then that have happened. So it would be pretty cool, but will it happen? I don't, I don't know. Probably not. I mean, Square Square Enix seems pretty tied up with its uh, Final Fantasy VII remake uh, episodes and uh, other and Final Fantasy sixteen as well. Final Fantasy sixteen. So uh, they they have other smaller teams working on other smaller games, but uh, maybe once they knock one or two of those off, they can come back to Nintendo or whatnot. But I mean, that'd be a cool future time. We'll deal with that if if that future time comes. But uh, Paper Mario, like you mentioned, you know, kind of had, you know, a lot of jokes and a a good sense of humor to it, which was kind of uh, uncommon for Mario games at the day. And still to this day, the Paper Mario franchise seems to be the one where the writers and developers of it maybe have the most fun with it and write in just silly, stupid jokes uh, for the script and dialogue as well. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. I just recently started, well, I... I got the newest Paper Mario for Christmas. I played a little bit of it, but, you know, I had a few other things on the go and haven't come back to it yet. But even right at the start of the game, there was a lot of kind of, you know, fun humor stuff that happened. And it was, it was almost like being snapped back and being like, oh, right, this is a Paper Mario game. It's going to be funny. Cool. I remember. Yeah, Paper Mario uh, games are the franchise where the developers of Nintendo or those teams can just be like, ah, they can undo their tie a bit more, maybe uh, undo the uh, the top button on their shirt or whatnot, and just like, and or maybe every day is casual Friday. Like, they can just have that level of fun and relaxation with these 
Paper, Paper Mario games as opposed to mainline Mario games where there's a different set of expectations and gameplay mechanics. So uh, Paper Mario for the N64, 20 years old, worth your time, also worth checking out Paper Mario Thousand Year Door, and really any of the Paper Mario games. They're, you're going to have an enjoyable experience. Not all of them are hardcore RPGs. You know, they're, they're accessible RPGs. Yeah. I think is the best way to put it. But if we go back five years from the release of Paper Mario, we end up back in 1996, which was still an okay year, uh, but we're specifically speaking of February 2nd of 1996, for that is the date that this movie came out, a team-up comedy between um, what had the potential to be a great long-running comedy duo that sadly was cut short at the time. Uh, we are speaking about the movie Black Sheep. Yeah, um, I'll be perfectly honest. This is the one of their movies that I really have almost no recollection of, and I'm not sure if I ever actually watched it, come to think of it. Um, but yeah, the, the comedy duo being Chris Farley and David Spade, who, you know, were in some of like the funniest SNL skets of the time together, as well as uh, obviously, you know, doing a couple of other movies as well, including, uh, well, like uh, it's escaping my brain at the moment. Well, before probably the, the reason you can't really think of uh, or think back to black sheep is because the movie before it, that they worked on together as their, you know, first film as a comedy duo was Tommy boy that came out in yes. 1995. Yes. Tommy boy is what I was thinking of. I mean, Tommy boy, I'm very familiar with. I've seen that one several times. And then after black sheep in 1997 was Beverly Hills ninja, like another major yes. Chris Farley movie, which I also remember watching a few times. So Black Sheep kind of is sandwiched in between the two of them and still felt in this in a similar vein to Tommy Boy, just with a different script to have Chris Farley engage in hijinks and uh, David Spade just kind of roll his eyes and try to keep Chris Farley on, you know, th on track with whatever the story dictated. But yeah, so that's probably why it's, you know, escaping your consciousness. And I'm sure it's escaped the consciousness of, of many people. Also, too, like I said, it's sandwiched between Tommy Boy, Beverly Hills Ninja. Yeah, two very notable movies. So this film, Black Sheep, kind of uh, represents really the the second and also last time that David Spade and Chris Farley starred on this silver screen as a leading comedy duo. Which yeah, is because, really unfortunate. Yeah, because as we know, Chris Farley, un unfortunately died at the end of 1997. Um, yeah, really tragic death. I mean, we won't, won't really get into the details of that too much here. We don't want to bring people down too much. He just, uh, yeah, had a drug problem, was not a very happy person, died at the age of 33. Super young, not great, but, you know, very talented comedic actor, very... You know, him, like the, the chemistry that David Spade and Chris Farley had was basically unmatched. Like they were, they were as classic of a, a comedy duo as I think, you know, some of, a, of the other great classic comedy duos that you'd think of, like, you know, Mel Brooks, Carl Reiner, um, you know, like Laurel and Hardy or, you know, like a Smothers Abbott Brothers. And, yeah. Smothers Brothers, Abbott and Costello. Like they, they've got, they had that thing going, even if they were like the Gen X version of it, you know, like, it really 
it still worked. Like they, they played off each other really well. Yeah, the dynamics just worked as, uh, and fed each, fed each off each other just so perfectly. Um, with Chris Farley just being the wild, manic, uh, out of control, crazy man and David Spade just being the, uh, the straight man. And David Spade is a great straight man. Oh yeah. Like he has just enough annoyed energy there to keep things on the rails and also be believable in the fact that he's annoyed at whatever crazy shit Chris Farley is doing at the moment because that's Chris Farley's or was Chris Farley's natural resting energy. He was just, you know, chaotic. Yeah. So if, if they had a, a, you know, more time together, more films and, you know, perhaps even more TV series, I could see them. I could see a pathway where they would have been one of those great or thought of as one of those great comedy duos. Yeah, I, I think so. But, uh, unfortunately cut way, cut way too short with, uh, Chris Farley's unfortunate passing, as he said, at the end of 1997. So, uh, all we are left with are the films that, uh, he did, which is a very short discography. It's, I mean, that's only what, eight films in his discography as we are both looking at it on Wikipedia now at this moment. And I'm hoping that, uh, the longer I talk, Dennis is, uh, being bought more time to just do a thorough counting of the filmography on Wikipedia. I, it's 10 by my count. 10, okay. So, still, not a lot of movies. And even then, no. uh, a lot of them are just cameo or very small roles. Uh, I think Tommy Boy, Black Sheep, and Beverly Hills Ninja are really the only three where Chris Farley starred. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, everything else, like Dirty Work, Almost Heroes, which are his last two, as well as Billy Madison, Wayne's World, Coneheads, Wayne's World 2, Airheads, were really just like bit parts. Well, actually, Almost Heroes, he co-starred with uh, Matthew Perry, so... Oh, right, okay, right, yeah, so... Yeah, but, yeah, Dirty Work, like most of the other ones, like, they were, like... Because he was friends with the people who made the movie, and, you know, it was just like... Did a bit part for them, you know? It's like, that's what his parts in Wayne's World, Wayne's World 2 were, that's what Coneheads was... That's what Airheads was. That's what Billy Madison was. But also, like, the other crazy thing, though, I would say that his scenes in those movies were still notable scenes because he was a scene stealer. <laughs> like, you remember what he did because he brought everything to what he did. <laughs> he did. Oh, God, as the uh, as the roadie tech guy in Wayne's World 2. Go ahead. Yeah, and as the bu- yeah, and as the bus driver in Billy Madison and, like... You know, as the boyfriend in Coneheads, like everything was like, you, you remember this, even though if it was a lesser person, you wouldn't remember, you wouldn't remember the guy who did that one, just that one scene in that movie. Even being the uh, security guard who just gives the unnecessary amount of information in Wayne's World 1, he still makes it a physical performance. Yeah, exactly. And same thing with the bus driver in Billy Madison. It's like, the, I, th- I think it's two scenes he was in, in Billy Madison, from what I remember, and everything, like, the one scene was just centered around him being way too mad, like, you know, everyone's had a bus driver like that, who was basically, like, the sit-down-and-shut-up kind of bus driver, and him taking that to the nth degree, and then the other scene being, you know, him trying to, like, brag with the adult about something that he never did. <laughs> and, yeah, and... <laughs> Yeah, he he stole every scene because he had that he brought that physicality to everything and you remember that more than just like someone who might just deliver a line that was kind of funny and went, "Ah, 
<laughs> but yeah, that, that's it. He would bring like his, his whole body would <laughs> be part of the every performance he was in, even if it was just delivering a line or pointing something out. Like the way he would point or the way he would say something was always like, oh, you can tell his whole like he put everything into it. He sure did, and uh, such was the performance stylings of Chris Farley. Uh, sadly, gone too soon. I mean, we don't. That's the reality. That's just a factual statement. He was gone too soon, and he, uh, I mean, maybe maybe that's uh, part of uh, why he just couldn't be around that long. He just put so much into everything. He, uh, I mean, if he didn't, even if he didn't pass in 1997, how long of a career would he have really had putting like literally everything into all of his performances? Yeah, that, I mean, that would be a very taxing on an individual, um, and also well, just, the shtick might it, get it, old. It's what happened to Chevy Chase, basically. Yeah, true, too. Good point. Uh, but even so, A Black Sheep from 1996, the last film to star uh, Chris Farley and David Spade, what could have been a great comedy duo. It turns 25 years old, and before that, we spoke of the start of a great Nintendo franchise, the Paper Mario games that started with the simply titled and aptly titled Paper Mario that turns 20 years old this year, actually 20 years old this week. So uh, happy milestone anniversary to both of those titles. And now we turn our attention now to wrapping up this program to allow you to continue on with your day, your night, your existence, your life, whatever it might entail. We hope it's a good one and hope you can join us again next time here on this program. If you want to get in touch with us, as always, we are on social media, on Twitter at The Arcade Show and on Facebook, facebook.com slash The Arcade Show. And you can always email us if you, if you have a lot of, a lot of words to say right in the long form. You can email us info at thearcadeshow.com. And uh, if you haven't done so already, really disappointed in you, hoping you can uh, just pick that up uh, and stop the disappointment and actually subscribe to our program if you haven't already. We are on iTunes. We are on Google Play Podcasts. Direct links to our pages on both of those platforms can be found on our homepage of thearcadeshow.com. So uh, until next time, good night, everybody. Good night. (laughs) 